Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's been my privilege over, I suppose, the last six years or so to have introduced several very distinguished speakers for our evening lectures, but uh, none more so than in the case of dear Kathleen, who I've introduced now many times. Uh, I was reflecting earlier with Kathleen's uh, granddaughter, I think, that when I've, I've known Kathleen for 30, nearly 32 years, and it seems astonishing to me that uh, when I first knew her, she was already older than I am now. It just seems unbelievable. <laughs> uh, she's going to last forever, of course, and um, principally because I'm really nagging her to get on with deciding what the canon shall be of her collected poems, which I hope to publish, ne which I hope to publish next year. Tonight is a very special occasion because uh, it coincides with the publication of a new book of Kathleen's and I'm very happy to say that there are some copies for sale on the desk at the back. It's Kathleen's new book, slightly delayed I have to say for technical difficulties, but it's published today and it's called Yeats and the Learning of the Imagination and tonight's paper is based on one of the chapters, so the full text and what Kathleen would like to have as the published text will be included, is included in the book. Kathleen, well, what can I say about Kathleen? Um, her achievements are so enormous that uh, to somebody of my generation, I treat her with not only respect, with awe. I've learned more from Kathleen, I should think, than almost everybody I've known put together. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person who is greatly indebted in their life to Kathleen's uh, wisdom and energy, uh, <coughs> focus, and her unique ability to draw the best out of people. I always like to think that Kathleen, at least in the years I've known her, she has, of all the people I've known, an astonishing ability to well, the only way I can really describe it is to say she seems to be able to sort of see the archetype in people. She sees the archetypal one of each of us. And she's able to draw this out. She's made me do things I never thought I could do. She's encouraged me, supported me. We've been collaborators together. We've been working companions. We've been sparring partners, haven't we, Kathleen? <laughs> Uh, we've crossed swords on a few occasions, but we've always come out of it as very deep friends. And she means more to me almost than anybody else in my life. Her achievements as a poet go right back to the 30s. From the 50s, she then started to publish prose books, uh, studies of some of her contemporaries like uh, Edwin Muir and David Gascoigne. But then, of course, her monumental studies of Blake and uh, then later Yeats, and she is in a certain sense, and that's what makes this evening's uh, publication, the book that's published today, a unique achievement, is that Kathleen is a, she's not a poet like W.B. Yeats was a poet, but she is in a certain sense the imaginative heir to uh, W.B. Yeats. She carries on the same stream of wisdom and draws upon the same sources of inspiration but in her unique way. I think I've 
I said to Kathleen earlier, what shall I say about you? She said, as little as possible. <laughs> I couldn't possibly let her get away with that, but I think probably I've said <coughs> enough. And so, uh, Kathleen, it's all yours. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. We all love flattery. It's lovely. <laughs> but it's such a joy to see you all here tonight. So many dear friends in this audience. In fact, I see more familiar faces than ones that I'm not familiar with this evening. And it's a great joy to me that you've come because I have, in the last two or three months, quite definitely entered old age. I've gone on being wonderful for many years and suddenly I, I, I feel it, it's different now. And uh, I, I'm determined to come, come what may. And I'm very, very glad to be with you all and to see you all here and to share this great love I have of Yeats with you to some extent in, in the paper. I'm about to read you. Brian has published the book from which this is taken uh, and it will be on sale. Well, there are a few copies here. Yes, yes, yes. And, and uh, I hope you, many of you get it and read it. It's, I, I hope, my last book, except that Brian is pressing me to <laughs> produce my uh, collected poems, which is a wonderful opportunity for dropping a great many poems that I should never have published in the first place. <laughs> That's the great advantage of publishing collected poems. I see Anna looking rather doubtful about that. It's <laughs> my first publisher long ago, and who printed some wonderful books of mine also, Alan. But I think even you will understand that there are a great many poems that ought to be forgotten, <laughs> and are best forgotten. Uh, any poet who writes more than half a dozen great poems in their life is extremely fortunate. I wouldn't claim to have written more than, well, not great poems, but memorable poems, maybe half a dozen, maybe fewer than that. But um, anyway, this is um, a sort of uh, not consecutive passages from my Yeats book, but this book on Yeats, whom I've loved very dearly um, all my life, from my childhood and onwards to now, he remains... Well, Blake I've been a very good servant to, but I often wish I could drop Blake and live with Yeats for a little while, and so this evening I'm speaking of Yeats in retrospect. I have lived long enough to have seen Yeats's reputation undergo more than one change, following changes in the climate of the literary world. At no time has his stature as a major poet been in doubt, nor is it likely to be otherwise in time to come. The greatest poet since Milton, T.R. Henn used to say, and indeed one would be hard put to it to argue that Wordsworth or Shelley or even Yeats's early master Blake, though a greater prophetic, prophetic visionary, better deserves that title. 
But it may be interesting at this time to look back on earlier views and to examine our own. I shall remind you of two very different earlier ways of seeing him and then suggest how Yeats may come to be seen in the very different world we are now entering. The first time I ventured to speak about Yeats was, I think, in 1924, when as a poetry-loving schoolgirl, I introduced a choice of my favorite modern poets. They were, I seem to remember, nearly all Irish poets. Padraig Colum, George Russell, I think Catherine Tynan was, were among them, and of course Yeats. I believe I chose He Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven and the Lake Isle of Inishree. I must have included some English poets, Delamere probably, but it is significant that I cannot remember them. At that time, the Irish Renaissance re-echoed here in England. It was before Eliot and Ezra Pound had set the course of poetry in, for the time at least, another direction. My generation was under the enchantment of Rutland Bowden's The Immortal Hour, based on an Irish mythological story. Many of my friends had seen it ten or twenty times. Money being scarce in my family, I saw it only two or three times with undiminished delight. I chose Irish poems at least for the best of reasons, because I loved them, because they spoke to me, I am, I realize, speaking of a world, a climate so far removed from the present that I wonder if I can evoke even the faintest fragrance of what was probably the last moment in this country when the general response to poetry was imaginative rather than intellectual. I was a child of my time and had long loved what I can only call the island of the imagination. By this I do not mean uh, that this island, whose existence is invisible, discoverable only in its music, story, mythology, speech and language, was or is imaginary in the sense of being unreal. On the contrary, that inner country, distilled by every nation in the form of its arts, a certain incommunicable essence that can be experienced but never analyzed, is more real, certainly, in the sense that concerns poets more real than a geographical or political country. It is what remains when historic actuality is forgotten, for well, this quintessence of the inner life of a people is the expression of some one among the many modes of the human spirit, which we call France or Spain or Japan or Russia, or indeed England, although the laborious task of secreting that essence obscures from day to day that inner quality of our own country, whatever it may be. Most of us have perhaps some secret inner nationality or several, be it ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or India or Japan, countries we have known only through their imaginative expressions. 
Arthur Whaley, whose ancient Japan and China most of us have visited and explored with such delight, chose quite deliberately, one has heard, never to visit Japan or China otherwise than imaginatively, lest he should lose the clear vision of that inner country he knew so well. Ireland was very er early a region of my own inner world because as a child at my village school on the border, the songs we learned were all from Scotland or from the related Irish tradition and because from my mother I had inherited a strong imaginative loyalty to Scotland, though my father was English, fortified by the beautiful lowland songs collected or written by Burns and known to all my mother's family who sang them in the course of the day's tasks, no wireless then. I shared with the Irish that strong sense of an older loyalty to a vanished kingdom and with that an intense love of a landscape of the heart to which the imagination is wedded, something Yeats understood at the ground of every oral tradition. Have not all races had their first unity from a mythology that marries them to rock and hill, Yeats asked. So it was that the harp that once through Tara's halls the soul of music spread stirred the same depth in me as the flowers of the forest or the gory bed of Scots where Harewood Wallace bled. And whatever critics of musical literature may argue against Moore's Irish melodies, I can but say that they spoke to my heart when I was a child and are a part of what I still am. And so it was with Yeats, master of the art of verse, smiling public man, both literary and political, as he later became. I believe that the deepest roots of his poetry are in a profound simplicity of a kind our world has almost lost, but that lies at the heart of childhood. It was this reason, uh, it was this resonance Yeats set vibrating in many besides myself in that first response to his Celtic, the Celtic twilight. Yeats came to know what he himself called the Book of the People in County Sligo, where he spent much of his childhood and boyhood in the company of the Irish country people, although his own family was Protestant and Anglo-Irish. Yeats was great enough to be simple naive, if you will, and to speak with the voice of that hidden Ireland of the imagination, whose sources are as mysterious and secret and as humble as childhood's response to the soul of Tara's harp. Edwin Muir, himself from Orkney, a world not unlike Yeats's Ireland, says somewhere in his writings how very much better it is to be moved by poetry we may later judge to be not of the highest order than, like so many scrutinising critics, not permit clever, uh, ourselves or others, which is worse, to be moved at all. Spurious cleverness can destroy, but never create. Yeats, for all his later grandeur, was never afraid of simplicity. 
and in the Celtic twilight he puts into words the experience of a gathering of country people on a summer evening in Galway by the roadside. Then some of the men stood up and began to dance, while another lilted the measure they danced to. And then somebody sang, Eileen a Ruin, that glad song of meeting that has always moved me more than other songs, because the lover who made it sang it to his sweetheart under the shadow of a mountain I looked at every day through my childhood. The voices melted into the twilight and were mixed into the trees. And when I thought of the words, they too melted away and were mixed with the generations of men. Now it was a phrase. Now it was an attitude of mind, an emotional form, that had carried my memory to older verses, or even to forgotten mythologies. I was carried so far that it is as though I came to one of the four rivers and followed it under the wall of paradise to the roots of the trees of knowledge and of life. There is no song or story handed down among the cottages that has not words and thoughts to carry one as far. For though one can know but a little of their ascent, one knows that they ascend, like medieval genealogies, through unbroken dignities to the beginning of the world. Folk art is indeed the oldest of the aristocracies of thought, and because it refuses what is passing and trivial, the merely clever and pretty, as certainly as the vulgar and insincere, and because it has gathered into itself the simplest and most unforgettable thoughts of the generations, it is the soil where all great art is rooted. Thank you, Tom. Yeats has himself added at least one song to the Book of the People, down by the Sally Gardens, set to an old tune and sung in Ireland wherever there is singing. A friend of the Spanish poet Lorca told me of the poet's delight when in a village in Spain he heard one of his own poems sung by people who did not know who had written it. Not fame, but anonymity is the supreme glory of the traditional poet. While in England, poets were in various ways expressing some individual vision, Yeats understood that in the deeper, deeper sources of poetry there is a mingling of many minds, a nationwide multiform reverie, every mind passing through a stream of suggestion and all streams acting and reacting upon one another. Was not a nation as distinguished from a crowd of chance comers bound together by this interchange among streams or shadows? Thus, from the outset, Yeats submitted his individual talent to sources of inspiration which lie deeper than any talent, however great, and any acquired culture, however comprehensive. What in his early poetry might seem simple, unreflecting, even naive, in terms of modern cleverness and sophistication, 
is in fact already an intuition of what is to be the central realization of his lifelong understanding of the imagination. In 1911, Yeats's friend, the painter William Rosenstein, visited India, where he met Tagore, whose work was already celebrated in his native Bengal and throughout India, but unknown in England. On his return to England, Rosenstein received a notebook containing English translations, some by Tagore himself, some by A.K. Kumaraswamy. This manuscript he showed to Yeats, who was deeply impressed. And the following year, Tagore himself visited London, where he was guest of honour at a gathering of some 70 of London's most distinguished poets and painters. When Yeats wrote the introduction to the volume published as Gitanjali, he was clearly thinking of his native Ireland. These prose translations from Rabindranath Tagore have stirred my blood as nothing has for years. These lyrics, Yeats continues, display in their thought a world I have dreamed of all my life long. The work of a supreme culture, they yet appear as much the growth of the common soil as the grass and the rushes. A tradition where poetry and religion are the same thing has passed through the centuries, gathering from learned and unlearned metaphor and emotion, and carried back again to the multitude the thought of the scholar and of the noble. If the civilization of Bengal remains unbroken, if that common mind which, as one divines, runs through all, is not, as with us, broken into a dozen minds that know nothing of each other, something even of what is most subtle in these verses will have come in a few generations to the beggar on the roads. That single mind is imagination, alike in all, rooted in the deeps of the mind that confer unity of being on the individual and unity of culture on nations. In his autobiographies, Yeats writes, What old ballad singer was it who claimed to have fought by day in the very battle he sang by night? So masterful indeed was that instinct that when the minstrel knew not who his poet was, he must needs make up a man. When any stranger asks who is the sweetest of singers, answer with one voice, a blind man. He dwells upon rocky chaos. His songs shall be the most beautiful forever. Elaborate modern psychology sounds egotistical, I thought, when it speaks in the first person, but not those simple emotions which resemble them the more, the more powerful they are, everybody's emotion, the more powerful they are, everybody's emotion. It was from the same book of the people that Homer had drawn his stories, as did Paddy Flynn, from whom Yeats had his most of his stories in the Celtic Twilight. <clears throat> a little bright-eyed old man who lived in a leaky and one-roomed cabin in the village of Ballisadare. 
He was a great teller of tales, and unlike our common romancers, knew how to empty heaven, hell, and purgatory, fairyland and earth, to people his stories. He did not live in a shrunken world, but knew of no less ample circumstances than did Homer himself. In trying to trace back my own, and therefore my generation's, response to Yeats's early poetry, I believe that the unreflecting delight grew from his rootedness in the Book of the People. When later his art became more deliberate, he invented masks for his wisdom from Ireland's anonymous country people, Crazy Jane, Red Hanrahan, Jack the Journeyman, Tom the Lunatic. Tempted at one moment by the thought of being universal, by being international, when I first wrote, I went here and there for my subjects as my reading led me and preferred to all other countries Arcadia and the India of romance. But presently, I convinced myself for such reasons as those in Ireland and the arts that I should never go for my scenery of a poem to any country but my own and I think I shall hold that conviction to the end, as he did, and in doing so became not merely the poet of, a poet of talent, but spoke with the voice of the Ireland of the imagination. His work immeasurably enriched. When later, and in a manner more willed and deliberate, he introduced famous names, many from the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, he chose to weave those names into folk tradition. Parnell came down the road and he said to a cheering man, Ireland shall get her freedom and you will still break stone. The names of these great men are spoken by anonymous Irish voices. My great-grandfather spoke to Edmund Burke in Grattan's house. My great-grandfather shared a pothouse bench with Oliver Goldsmith once. My great-grandfather's father talked of music, drank tar water with the Bishop of Cloyne. And mine saw Stella once. What schooling had these four? They walked the roads, mimicking what they heard. As children mimic, they understood that wisdom comes of beggary. So for Yeats, tradition signified something age-old and anonymous. Douglas Hyde and other of Yeats's older contemporaries had already set about collecting the poems and stories of Ireland, and Yeats himself set Lady Gregory to work on her own remarkable collection from the country people of Galway, Visions and Beliefs. Delamere's fantasy world is a highly personal one. Yeats's fairy world is the mythological heritage of a race. The term afterlife 
is not really applicable to Yeats's investigations of the discarnate world. Implicit in the word afterlife is the Christian teaching that we have but one life on this earth, that the newborn have no prehistory but pass at death to an eternal heaven or hell according to our deserts or to purgatory. This is not the teaching of Indian, nor of Platonic and Neoplatonic scriptures, nor was it Yeats's belief. On October 14, 1914, just three months after the outbreak of the First World War, Yeats wrote this date at the end of a long essay he had just completed entitled Swedenborg, Mediums and the Desolate Places. This essay was written as an appendix to the two volumes Visions and Beliefs of the West of Ireland, collected in and around Galway by Yeats's friend Lady Gregory. The essay is the fruit of many years of study and comparison of evidence. Yeats understood that these seemingly diverse fields are all related to the same kind of knowledge. Yeats had become aware of the other world as ever-present in his childhood in the west of Ireland, in and around Sligo. He grew up among people who required no proofs of that world, for they lived habitually on its frontiers. The presence of the dead and of the fairies and their apparitions was a daily reality. For the country people, the fairy faith existed side by side with their Catholic religion, which is itself more aware of the miraculous than the more rational Protestant creed of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy to which Yeats's own family belonged. Little statues of the Virgin Mary or St. Bridget by holy wells or stones served the same immemorial function as the older gods they have supplanted, dispensing healing and other gifts to humankind at certain sacred places, consecrating the land itself, peopling hills and rivers and lakes and shores with invisible presences and powers, including the dead, who stayed where they had lived or near it, sought no abstract region of blessing or punishment, but retreated, as it were, into the hidden character of their neighbourhood. Yeats gives instances of this in his early book, The Celtic Twilight, and Lady Gregory, whom he later set to collect the material of her visions and beliefs, many more. In these so-called superstitions, Yeats recognized the traces of a view of reality more ancient and universal than the creed of his grandfather, the rector of Drumcliffe, or his own father's courteous scepticism. He believed that the Irish Book of the People can be traced back to the Druids, and the Druids to the ancient Aryan cultural diffusion of which Ireland and India are the Western and the Eastern extremes, a view of the soul that includes, both among the Druids and in India, a belief in reincarnation. Many of Yeats's early poems and the play The Land of Heart's Desire reflect the beliefs of the, Ga the Gaelic-speaking country people Yeats knew so well in his childhood. 
as indeed do two more powerful later plays, The Dreaming of the Bones and Purgatory, all these telling of the twilight in which the dead and the living are not far from one another. Yeats came to know Swedenborg, it seems, through his father's friend Edwin J. Ellis. He must have been reading Swedenborg in his twenties, for he writes in Swedenborg mediums and the desolate places of having read Swedenborg's spiritual diary before the fascination of Blake and Burma had led me away. Yeats had collaborated with Edwin Ellis in their edition of Blake's, Blake's Prophetic Books, published in 1893, when Yeats was 28. Writing in 1914, he confesses that he had forgotten Swedenborg completely until his own investigations through mediums and Lady Gregory's and his own work of collecting the fast-fading pages of the Book of the People had made him turn again to Swedenborg's book. Blake himself had been a Swedenborgian, and his system, so puzzling to ap academic students of his work, is in essence that of Swedenborg, with additions from Neoplatonic and other sources. But whereas to Blake the essential teaching of Swedenborg is his vision of the divine humanity, the many in one and one in many of the eternal Christ, Yeats was more immediately interested in the discarnate world and the individual soul's destiny in that state. His voluminous writings have since provided the foundations of the great body of evidence collected by the Society for Psychical Research and the many distinguished researchers in a field in which Yeats himself was an industrious worker. In Yeats's words, Swedenborg gave what there is of anatomy to the sentimental body of spiritualistic theory, but waking trance and vision were themselves uninvestigated. Yeats was a member of the Society for Psychical Research and possessed all its proceedings, as he did most of the important books on psychical research written at the turn of the century. Yet he writes that he did not go to seances for evidence of the kind that the Society for Psychical Research would value. That is to say, he did not go to have his doubts removed or confirmed by proofs and evidence of a factual kind. Rather, he tells us, in the essay already quoted, that certain things had happened to me when alone in my own room, which had convinced me that there are spiritual intelligences which can warn us and advise us. Yet he was far from credulous, speaking... Uh, 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 far from credulous, checking the statements of mediums most rigorously. I pieced together stray thoughts written out after questioning the familiar of a trance medium or automatic writer by Alan Kardec or by some American or by myself or arranged the fragments into some pattern until I believed myself to be the discoverer of a vast generalization. I lived in excitement 
amused to make Holloway interpret Aaron and constantly comparing my discoveries with what I have learned of medieval tradition among fellow students with the reveries of a Neoplatonist or a 17th century Platonist, of Paracelsus or a Japanese poet. Then one day I opened the spiritual diary of Swedenborg, which I had not taken down for 20 years and found all there. The vast generalization Yeats was already developing in 1914 was to be given its final form in A Vision, whose second version was published in 1937, just two years before the poet's death. By comparing evidence gained from many seances with mediums, with beliefs collected by Lady Gregory and himself from the country Irish-speaking people, seen in the context of the comprehensive doctrine of Swedenborg, Yeats sought to arrive at a doctrine of souls. His vast generalization and ever-growing structure of thought, whose final presentation is a vision, and which underlies his powerful plays on the discarnate world, the words upon the window pane, the dreaming of the bones, and purgatory. I was comparing one belief with another, he writes, and like Paracelsus, who claimed to have collected his knowledge from midwife and hangman, I was discovering a philosophy. And yet I do not think I have been easily convinced for I know we make a false beauty by a denial of ugliness, and that if we deny the causes of doubt, we make a false faith, and that we must excite the whole being into activity if we would offer to God what is, it may be, the one thing germane to the matter, a consenting of all our faculties. This all-embracing thought is far removed from the negating attitude of discursive reason. Yeats did not possess Swedenborg's psychic gift, nor Blake's soaring imaginative vision. States of expanded consciousness came to him seldom, and then through magical techniques, mediumships, and other aids towards the opening of the mind. Yeats was, one might say, a scientific investigator, but winged by that attitude of imaginative ascent which serves to create the reality towards which it is directed, nothing less than the building of the worlds, the heavens and the earths the soul inhabits. Yeats did not enter into his prolonged and deep searching of the records, written and unwritten, of the soul's history in search of proofs of survival, but rather because, believing as he did in its immortality, he wished to discover more of the discarnate phase of our single and continuous life. The Catholic teaching on purgatory and the value of prayers for the dead notwithstanding, Christianity is strangely reticent and incurious about the afterlife, and necromancy has always been actively discouraged. Yeats was aware of this lack, and in a vision writes, 
Because we no longer discover the still unpurified dead through our own and others' dreams, and those in freedom through contemplation, religion cannot answer the atheist, and philosophy talks about a first cause or a final purpose when we would know what we were a little before conception, what we shall be a little after burial. In contrast with this official silence, Swedenborg describes the heavens and the hells not as places of reward and punishment, but as correspondences of the ever-varying imaginings of the spirits. In an instant they can build up mountains and gardens and palaces or caverns and claustrophobic ruinous surroundings. So heaven and hell are built always anew, and in hell or heaven all do what they please, and are surrounded by scenes and circumstances which are the expression of their natures and the creation of their thought. Thus, the very trivialities typical of communication through mediums are just such as we would expect from those whose lives are wrapped up in such things. In the words upon the window pane, Yeats evokes the very atmosphere of the seance room he has frequented, and seance rooms he has frequented, and which he describes in the same essay. I found much that was moving when I had climbed to the top story of some house in Soho or Holloway, and having paid my shilling, awaited among servant girls the wisdom of some fat old medium. That is an absorbing drama, though if my readers begin to seek it, they will spoil it, for its gravity and simplicity depends on all, or all but all, believing that their dead are near. The form of the words upon the window pane is that of the realistic drama of Ibsen's school, but its drama comes, as in the No Theatre of Japan, from the arrival of the tormented spirits of Swift, Stella and Vanessa, still held in the passion of unsatisfied ambition and tragic love and reliving their past. Yeats concludes his essay by comparing the folk beliefs of the Western world and the visions of Swedenborg with the drama of the world of discarnate spirits, the No Theatre of Japan. He tells a story from the Isle of Arran of lovers who came to a priest after death asking him to marry them with that of a no-play rich in lyric poetry in which a Buddhist priest performed that rite for two ghosts on a hillside who tell him the story, their story. Their spirits are set at rest by the performing of the marriage they had not consummated in their, early, earthly, in their earthly life. Such stories were, for Yeats, first-hand told him by country people in County Sligo or in Galway, as I have myself heard them from Scottish Gaelic people in the Western Isles, and had reached him with all the poignancy of life itself, warmed on our hearths and in our souls. In the Celtic twilight, he had told many such stories, 
As in the new drama, so in Ireland, this world and the world we go to after death are not far apart. Yeats tells such a story in the words of an old Mayo woman. I have heard of a ghost that was many years in a tree and many years in the archway of a bridge, and my old Mayo woman says, there is a bush up at my own place and the people do be saying that there are two souls doing their penance under it. When the wind blows one way, the one has shelter, and when it blows from the north, the other has shelter. It is twisted over with the way they be rooting under it for shelter. In the dreaming of the bones and purgatory, Yeats is again drawing on what he had long before learned in the desolate places. Both these plays are attempts to create an equivalent of the no drama. The dreaming of the bones, 1919, captures the very atmosphere and beliefs of the west of Ireland. A young man fleeing for his life after the Easter rising meets on a hillside near the Abbey of Corcomro, a stranger and a young girl. These offer to lead him by safe ways to his rendezvous with a boat that will carry him to safety. The chorus describes the stony path among the briars and the thorn. The stranger begins to tell the story of the adulterous lovers Dermot and Davogilla buried nearby, who had first invited <coughs> I'm sorry. Buried nearby, who had first invited the English into Ireland to take part against Dervogilla's husband, the King of Thomond. Because of their guilt, they must haunt the hills, and as people of dreams relive again their story, again and again their story, and there are echoes of folklore known to Yeats in the chorus and the dialogue. Dreaming of the bones. Time, 1916. Any bare place, a pattern of mountain and sky. One musician, then two others. Their instruments, a drum, a zither, and a flute. Song for the folding and unfolding of the cloth. Why does my heart beat so? Did not a shadow pass? It passed but a moment ago. Who can have trod in the grass? What rogue is night wandering? Have not all writers said that dizzy dreams can spring from the dry bones of the dead? And many a night it seems but all the valley fills with those fantastic dreams. They overflow the hills, so passionate is a shade, like wine that fills to the top a grey-green cup of jade, or maybe an agate cup. The hour before dawn, and the moon covered up. The little village of Abbey is covered up. The little narrow-trodden way that runs from the white road to the Abbey of Corcombro is covered up. 
and all about the hills are like a circle of agate or of jade. Somewhere among great rocks on the scarce grass, birds cry. They cry their loneliness. Even the sunlight can be lonely here. Even hot noon is lonely. I hear a footfall. A young man with a lantern comes this way. He seems an Aaron Fisher, for he wears the flannel bornine and the cowhide shoe. He stumbles wearily and stumbling prays. Cower long, a while here near. Once more the birds cry in their loneliness. But now they wheel about our heads, and now they have dropped on the grey stone to the northeast. A stranger and a young girl in the costumes of a past time come in. They wear heroic masks. The young fugitive raises his lantern. Who is there? I cannot see what you are like. Come to the light. But what have you to fear? And why have you come creeping through the dark? The girl blows out the lantern. The wind has blown my lantern out. Where are you? I saw a pair of heads against the sky and lost them after. But you are in the right. I should not be afraid in County Clare, and should be or should not be, have no choice. I have to put myself into your hands now that my candle's out. You have fought in Dublin. I was in the post office, and if taken, I should be put against a wall and shot. You know some place of refuge? Have some plan or friend who will come to meet you. I am to lie at daybreak on the mountain and keep watch until an Aaron Coracle puts in at Muckanish or at the rocky shore under Finvara, but would break my neck if I went stumbling there alone in the dark. We know the pathways that the sheep tread out and all the hiding places of the hills and that they had better hiding places once. You would say they had better before English robbers cut down the trees or set them upon fire for fear their owners might find shelter there. What is that sound? An old horse gone astray. He's been wandering on the road all night. I took him for a man and horse. Police are out upon the roads in the late rising. I think there was no man of us but hated to fire at soldiers who but did their duty and were not of our race. But when a man is born in Ireland and of Irish stock, when he takes part against us, I will put you safe. No living man shall set his eyes upon you. I will not answer for the dead. The dead? For certain days the stones where you must lie have in the hour before the break of day been haunted. But I was not born at midnight. Many a man that was born in the full daylight can see them plain, will pass them on the high road or in the crowded marketplace of the town and never know that they have passed. My granddad would have it they did pants everywhere. Some lived through their old lives again in a dream, and some for an old scruple, 
must hang spitted upon the swaying tops of lofty trees. Some are consumed in fire, some withered up by hail and sleet out of the wintry north, and some but live through their old lives again. Well, let them dream into what shape they please and fill waste mountains with the invisible tumult of the fantastic conscience. I have no dread. They cannot put me into jail or shoot me. And seeing that their blood has returned to fields that have grown red from drinking blood like mine, they would not, if they could, betray. This pathway runs to the ruined abbey of Corcoran Road. The abbey passed, we are soon among the stone, and shall be at the ridge before the cocks of Achenish, Obolyavelah, and Norgray, Ochtmanner, shake their wings and crow. They go round the stage once. They pass the shallow well and the flat stone fouled by the drinking cattle, the narrow lane where mourners for five centuries have carried noble or peasant to his burial. An owl is crying out above their heads. Why should the heart take pride? What sets it beating so? The bitter sweetness of the night has made it but a lonely thing. Redbird of March begin to crow, up with the neck and clap the wing, red cock and crow. They go round the stage once. Now they have climbed through the long grassy field and past the ragged thorn trees and the gap in the ancient hedge. And the tomb-nested owl at the foot's level beats with a vague wing. My head is in a cloud. I let the whole world go. My rascal heart is proud, remembering and remembering. Red bird of March begin to crow, up with a neck and clap the wing, red cock and crow. They go round the stage once. They are among the stones above the ash, above the briar and thorn and the scarce grass, hidden amid the shadow far below them, the cat-headed bird is crying out. The dreaming bones cry out because the night winds blow and heaven's a cloudy blot. Calamity can have its bling. Red bird of March begin to crow up with the neck and clap the wing, red cock and crow. We are almost at the summit and can rest. The road is a faint shadow there, and there the abbey lies amid its broken tombs. In the old days we should have heard a bell calling the monks before day broke to pray, and when the day had broken on the ridge, the crowing of its cocks. Is there no house famous for sanctity or architectural beauty in Clare or Kerry or in all White Connaught? The enemy has not unroofed. Close to the altar, broken by wind and frost and worn by time, Donald O'Brien has a tomb, a name in Latin. He wore fine clothes and knew the secrets of women. But he rebelled against the King of Tormund 
and died in his youth. And why should he rebel? The king of Tommond was his rightful master. It was men like Donna who made Ireland weak. My curse on all that troop. And when I die, I'll leave my body, if I have any choice, far from his ivy tod and his owl. Have those who, if your tale is true, work out a penance upon the mountain top where I'm to hide, come from the abbey graveyard? The young girl speaks. They have not that luck, but are more lonely. Those that are buried there ward in the heat of blood. If they were rebels, some momentary impulse made them rebels, or the commandment of some petty king who hated Tommond. Being but common sinners, <coughs> no callers in of the alien from oversea, they and their enemies of Tommond's party mix in a brief dream battle above their bones, or make one drove, or drift in amity, or in the hurry of the heavenly round forget their earthly names. These are alone, being accursed. Thank you, Tom. Well, that's it. That is the... <laughs> to take questions which I, I'm afraid I can't hear, deafness being one of my afflictions of old age, my diminishments stay out of Chardin, call them, but Brian Keeble will repeat uh, questions and I'll do my best to respond to them in any way I can. Just, just before I do that, can I uh, apologise to Tom Durham for not saying at the beginning, which I meant to say, that we would be indebted to him for his excellent readings. Thank you very much, Tom. <laughs> Tom has become our, more or less our sort of residential reader now, I think. Uh, if you have any questions, I, what I would ask you to do is if you could keep them... I have a tiny brain. I can't understand long questions. If you could keep them short so that I can repeat them to Kathleen, uh, that would be helpful. If you have to give a very elaborate one, I'd have to ask you to stand and almost shout it. So I give you the option. Could I just say how delightful it was? <laughs> Not a question, Kathleen. Uh, kind gentleman says he'd like to say how delighted he's been by your talk. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm really glad. It's perhaps a difficult talk, really, to formulate questions from, in a way. A very rich and elaborate text. Um, not sure that I had any questions that I wanted to ask about that one. It's something that one wants to sort of meditate on and digest. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, you can do if you buy a book. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, yes, I'd like to ask um, Kathleen Ray talked about um, a 
an imaginative response to poetry as mm -hmm. opposed to an intellectual response. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether she feels there's value in both or whether one is essentially in one, at one end of it or another. Yes. Uh, your distinction between an imaginative approach to poetry mm -hmm. and uh, an intellectual approach to poetry, uh, would you say the distinction is one of a judgment? Uh, do you think there are valid ways, both ways are valid, or have you any comment on that? Well, in a sense, I suppose both are valid, but essentially I would say that poetry is the language of the imagination, that that is what poetry is, and that that is what it has been from time immemorial, and it is, it is the thought of the imagination, and rational thought is much later and more uh, restricted in provincial uh, activity. That is, would be my own view of it. I, I never myself find much um, satisfaction in um, rational poetry, although it can be clever in a certain sense. And, and, uh, but it doesn't give deep satisfaction of the soul because the poetry of the imagination comes from so much deeper and from so much older, so much older roots. At least so it seems to me. I think that is what is the trouble in this period, why we have no really good poetry being written at this time. Because we've lost we've lost our connection with the imagination. We've rationalized it out of and facts the the, the modern scientific mentality is a language of facts, verifiable, measurable facts which has nothing to do with imagination. Phenomenology, I suppose you could call imagination. It is the experiencing of the world rather than the analyzing of it. Because from the point of view of science, um, ice, steam, and water are all the same thing. But of course, from the point of view of experience, they're three very different things. And that is the, the difference between the imaginative approach and the uh, factual approach. But it's such a large subject, I really can't talk about it, except as my own belief that the imagination is the language of poetry. Yes, sir. What you've just said, I think, is so terrific could we at a later date have a whole lecture from you on that, please? After the collected poems. <laughs> After the collected poems. I have what Thetis is being a bit mischievous, I think. Yes, what is she asking for? <laughs> She'd like you to give a talk about the distinction you just made, uh, a more elaborate talk, a full talk, about the distinction between imaginative thinking and, uh, as it were, rational and scientific thinking. Well, I hope that this is my last work, Thetis. <laughs> One could. People are talking endlessly about it, but I don't know what more I can say. I think I've made my input. I, I feel that this book I've just written on Yeats uh, answers a good many of those questions that are implicit in your questions. I think you'll find it does illuminate these things. As indeed I hope my work on Blake also does. I think it is profoundly important. I believe the tide is turning. I really do believe that there is 
the beginning of looking, people looking again for the imaginative rather than the rational response to life because it is more satisfying to the whole of what we are. <laughs> but it's a very large question, as you know, as an artist yourself. <laughs> yes. Um, could I ask Miss Rain um, which poems she herself would um, think that she was particularly proud of? Ooh. Uh, um, oh, I heard did, that. Did you hear that one? <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> I'm not particularly proud of any of my poems, on the contrary. But uh, I think some of my short aphoristic poems are quite good. I think my best work is probably a sequence of poems entitled On Deserted Shore, which William Cookson has recently reprinted. Um, I don't really know. Brian is, is trying to persuade me to make a collected poems, uh, which is an opportunity for dropping a great many poems that should never have been published. But there are a few that come through. <laughs> I think probably everybody would have a different answer to that yes. question, really. Uh, it is, I, I wouldn't like to say myself. Um, but that's not for me to say. But uh, I suspect that uh, uh, it's there. Uh, I would venture to suggest that of Kathleen's work, there are no, there's no obvious one that stands out in a way, is there? Would you say? Not one. Not, not one or two, even. Yes. I think they're banned. It's strange, we were talking about this earlier, and Kathleen was saying that she's favours rejecting many of the earlier poems, but uh, it's known, quite well known, that many of her admirers uh, actually love the early poems, uh, which is, so there you are, so it's a very difficult... And I'm trying to get Kathleen to settle the canon of her collected poems, and I think the, uh, the argument that swayed her uh, led her out of her reluctance, shall we say, to do it, was that um, I said, well, look, Kathleen, if you don't decide what is going to be the Catholic collected poems, uh, posterity will have its revenge and they'll print everything. Oh, I can't have that, she said. <laughs> so, um, but we're going to have to live with at least the canon that she decides and it's going to be a complex operation. But there was another question. Yes, I was curious, what are your views on afterlife? I don't have any. <laughs> I, I believe those who claim to know these things, Plato or your Vedic writers in India, the Katha Upanishad, uh, but it becomes more and more subtle. Uh, the more profound the, uh, the Upanishads are, it becomes less and less a sort of black and white uh, answer to a question like this. The spiritualists who just see it very much in literal terms that uh, their aunt and their grandmother uh, survive and do the sort of thing they did on earth or they don't. It's, it's not like that. It's a much, much more subtle thing. Uh, I'm not prepared to say something is eternal, may not be our individual egos, but something is eternal. Spirit is eternal. I, that I, I don't doubt for a moment. 
but whether we, what part we play in that, and all the answers have some profound wisdom in them. The Buddhist answer, the uh, particularly the uh, answer of the Upanishads, I follow myself. I don't believe in heaven and hell as eternal states in the Christian sense that uh, either we merit heaven or we merit hell, and that's that. That's not like that at all. I think it is in that respect more like Yeats's picture of the spirits uh, creating their own worlds. And the Buddhist view would be very much that also, that uh, the souls um, remain in the heavens or the hells for as long as they are creating them, but that they pass on. And Blake said, men pass on, states remain, but men pass on, uh, that we, we pass from state to state, that uh, we, we learn, we, we progress. I, I don't know, uh, you probably know more than I do, you're making wonderful films. <laughs> it's, it, these questions are perhaps unanswerable. You were asking me about a poem. I'm going to recite you a poem that I think I like very much. It's, I think it's almost the only one I know by heart. To the voice that speaks to the many, deaf ears attend. To the voice that speaks to one, poet's song, voice of birds, many listen. But the voice that speaks to none, by all is heard. Sound of the wind, music of the stars, prophetic word. I think I, I would say that that was as good as I've done. <laughs> way to end yeah. with that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Kathleen. Well, thank you all for coming. It's been wonderful for me to be with you. <laughs>